This podcast was created during the 2023 WGA and SAG after strikes. We understand that without the creative influences of these unions, we wouldn't have a show to talk about. So we encourage you to continue to contribute to the Entertainment Community Fund. You'll find the link in the show notes and continue to support it even after the strike is over. Thank you. the Queen of Andor has issued the following proclamation. This podcast shall be discussing the most recent episode of Wheel of Time. If you have not seen that episode and do not wish to be spoiled, go witness the Dragon Reborn in the latest episode and then return. So it is written, so shall it be done. Welcome back to Bustin' Blockbusters. Matt here with you. And I'm sorry, but I'm alone this week because of the way my schedule was. I could not fit in a way that would work for Bubba and Priscilla. So you just get me. And I know that's kind of a bummer for most of you, but uh, hopefully you'll stick around and listen to what I have to say. Today we're talking about Season 2, Episode 6 of The Wheel of Time called Eyes Without Pity. It was written by Rami Park and directed by Maya Varillo. The synopsis for you is Rand makes a risky alliance and Egwene gathers her strength to confront the horror of her circumstances. Yeah, definitely a horror. Something that's not a horror is we actually have an entrant into our contest for a chance to win an Amazon $100 gift card Congratulations to Melissa Nola7306 on YouTube. Melissa Nola, you have correctly guessed the four TV franchises. And folks, let me get into this just for a minute, and then we'll get right to my rating after that. So what I was getting from Bubba and Priscilla last week is the fact that it was impossible to determine what the four TV series would be based on the covers that were in the background. But Melissa, you proved them wrong. And folks, you still have a chance to prove them wrong yourselves on my social media, at Bust Blockbuster on Elon Musk's social media that they call X, that I still try to call Twitter because X just sounds weird. I don't want to be on a space company social media. I don't want to be on a porn social media. Anyway, Twitter. X, whatever you want to call it, find at Bus Blockbuster. The video is pinned to my profile there. And you can guess the four television franchises that those books are the source of. Send those to me. You can tweet to at Bus Blockbuster on Twitter. You can send emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com, M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com. Or you can comment on the video just like Melissa did. Melissa, I would actually urge you to probably delete your comment. I have you down, so you don't need to worry about whether your submission was saved or not. But you don't want to give anybody else the answers. Right now, you're the only one. You could actually win it because nobody else can steal your answers from you. So if you want to delete that comment, I'm perfectly cool with that. I would advise you to, actually. Nonetheless, Folks, uh, or you might want to get to the video and, and see it real quick so that you can see her suggestion because she did all the hard work. But submit it to me. Anybody who gets all four TV franchises correct 
can in fact be entered into a contest to win a $100 gift card from Amazon on me. It's not a partnership with Amazon. This isn't something that I'm just giving away on their behalf. This is something that I am actually paying for because I don't accept money for anything that I do. I don't feel that my words are worth that. That's why I don't have a Patreon. That's why I don't have any of those things. The one way you can support me is to use all of that same contact information to send me your feedback on these episodes, on the podcast episodes, but even more so, I would love to hear what you think of these episodes as they're happening so that I can share it with our listening audience and our listening audience can feel like that there's somebody besides this crazy guy talking into their ears that has good opinions on things. Let's get into my rating for this episode, season two, episode six, Eyes Without Pity. Oh, hail the court of Morgay's Queen of Andor is now in session. Hail. The Queen will now hear proclamations of ratings for this episode of Wheel of Time. In a way, I'm kind of glad that Bubba and Priscilla don't have to be here because this is a really tough episode, guys. It is something that's hard to praise simply because of the subject matter, yet it is so well done that you have to praise it. And so it just leaves me in this really weird position where I feel like that I'm praising something that is just awful and disgusting and uncomfortable. But I'm still thinking that this is one of the best episodes of this season. I'm Last week, I believe I rated a 9.6. This week, I'm going to give a 9.5 out of 10, what I like to call double Ds. That stands for disturbing drama. Uh, that's the only way that I can put it. So much of this was so uncomfortable. And while I feel like it really does demonstrate, especially for book readers, how they're going to approach Egwene's feelings towards the Shan Shan in the future, I think that that sets it up really well because there's a whole thing that Egwene goes through regarding these people. And now you can see why. It's just absolutely awful. But you throw on top of that even the more of the horror of the fact that it was that blue sitter that was telling Moraine about what was going on in the West last season. She's right next door to Egwene and has already suffered what Egwene is suffering through. And you have the yellow Aja, Rima, who is absolutely destroyed by having her warder killed in front of her. And then she's taken prisoner anyway. The whole idea was she was going to sacrifice herself for the safety of Nynaeve and Elaine. The emotions that you see those two go through. And as if that's not enough, you've got all of this family drama going on with Moraine. You have this beautiful reunion between Rand and Matt, and only to be heartbroken yet again. Just so much stuff that is so good, and at the same time, just breaks you, man. But that's my rating. 9.5 out of 10 double Ds. Disturbing dramas. Let me know what your rating was at bust blockbuster on elon musk's social you can send emails to matt's audio blog at gmail.com you can also leave comments on our double p media youtubes youtube.com slash at the word double the letter p the word media you can use that same spelling for the email address hello at double p 
Or you can use the word double, the letters PHQ, across all of the social medias, Twitter, Instagram, threads, and even Facebook, facebook.com slash the word double, the letters PHQ. Naturally, because Bubba isn't here, there won't be any Bubba has questions this time around. We're going to go straight into my musical analysis, and then we will talk up the episode. So it is written... So shall it be done? So the first thing that I want to talk about in this week's musical analysis, and I'll be pretty brief about this, but you have no idea how important it is to decide where to not put any music now oftentimes this is a collaboration between the director and the composer but i loved the way that as Egwene for that final time reached for that pitcher and her hand actually touched it all of the music went away that was so important because that made what had just happened to Egwene to be broken the silence told us how personal it was how isolating it was. And that had just as much importance as any note that Lauren could have played. And of course, after she comes to that realization and she starts to let the emotion out about that, then the music can return. But it was very important to have nothing except Egwene, nothing except Madeline in that moment. That's what made that even more powerful music led up to the moment and then went away and we let Madeline and Egwene have that moment and we cried for her and then when she started crying then the music could express that as well excellently done people just have no idea how much they just take a soundtrack for granted but that scene would not have sold nearly as well if music had continued playing after she touched that picture. The second thing that I want to talk about that I won't be playing anything on the piano because it's quite literally impossible to reproduce on a piano and pointless to, and that is Loyal's tree singing. Amazing. Very much like throat singing done by the Tibetan monks. It has that real guttural and lots of overtones. It's overtone rich. Overtones are the things that make timbres sound the way that they do. It's also the way that you can produce different pitches by just emulating one. And that's what the Tibetan monks do. And you really get that sense of it as Loyal is singing to that tree. Loved it. Next, I want to talk about Leandrin really quick. Because if you listen to the... Season 2, Volume 1 soundtrack by Lauren Balfe, you'll hear a song specifically composed for Leandrin. Given Kate Fleetwood's performances this year, I think it's perfectly appropriate that Leandrin have her own theme. The interesting thing is, we actually heard the harmonic structure of that being played when Lanfear visited Leandrin. We didn't hear the melody, but we did hear the chords. 
When you hear the melody and the chords together in the soundtrack, it sounds like this. And interestingly enough, that's kind of peppy, right? It's got a little bit of a bounce to it. But if you just use the harmony from that, it sounds much sadder and much more appropriate for the moment as it did underneath when Lanfear was taking the breath out of her son for the last time, we heard these chords. That harmony is minor, and naturally, as I've talked about many times before here, when you have harmony based in a minor key, the feelings are darker. And this is a moment of sadness for Leandrin. And so I thought it was perfectly appropriate to take that bouncy melody away and just play the chords. Beautifully done by Mr. Balf. And finally, the last thing we should talk about is the way that Egwene's theme was constantly graduating throughout the course of this episode. When we first see that she can look out at the tree, we kind of get her theme the way we heard it when she was first in the tower, which is great because it's still Egwene. She's still all there. Yes, she's a little rattled, but she is still all there. It's still completely her. But as we go on through the episode, there are different instruments playing it at different tempos. There are also slight reharmonizations as we go through these as well. For instance, when Egwene is working on the tree with her suldam, we hear slightly different harmonies underneath that melody that is her verse which quickly changes to a solo version of that verse theme when she can't grab the pitcher again and the Suldam Rena starts to beat her, to kick her. And you start to feel those slow chords underneath now, not the moving melody that was when she was working on the tree. And I'm not going to break the melody down anymore or re-examine the theme because... We've already talked about that once this season, but I wanted to point out how well her theme was used in different contexts, with different instruments, sometimes singing, sometimes instrumental. Sometimes I think there was a guitar in there as well. And you can hear different examples of that kind of performance in the season two, volume two, official soundtrack, which Mr. Balf now has out as well. Um, what is the name of that cut? I believe it's called Making Plans, perhaps. But you'll have to check that out for yourself. And that's all that we have time for with the music this time around. Let's get to spinning the tiny wheel of topics. The first topic on the wheel is, of course, Egwene and everything that's going on with her in this particular episode. How can you not make this your number one topic? So brutal. The idea of Rena being basically an abusive dog owner, because that's the way that the Suldam look at their Damani. They're not 
women, as Rena points out often in this episode, they are demoni, which is nothing more than a pet in a way, a slave, of course. It's so disturbing from the way that Egwene, from the very first time we see her in this episode, she is drug in by her neck, by that leash. And of course, we learn a lot about this device that is on her now, not only through these scenes by the rules that Rena is imposing, the fact that she can't hurt her Sudam, the fact that she can't attempt to remove the Adam, which is that collar, the fact that she can't even touch anything that she feels like she might use as a weapon against really anyone, perhaps even herself. And then we find out that it was created by a member of the Aes Sedai. And we find out through Elaine and Nynaeve and Rima that it is a Terran Grial, not unlike the Arches. It has its own thing. And I guess you can activate it. You can deactivate it, perhaps, if you can wield the power. But as Nynaeve discovers, it only feels complete when it is around a magic wielder. Can Terriangrials have feelings? Well, that's the best way to explain it, I suppose, to a television audience. It's just all so disturbing. And let's face it, something else that we learned about Egwene in this particular episode is she's got a lot of power. Now, maybe it didn't work so well against Leandrin earlier in this season, but she certainly tore up the heck out of that tree when Rima was making her use the magic and teaching her how to feel inside. Perhaps what Rema has done is actually expanded Egwene's capabilities. And if she can take that with her as she goes along, she's going to be a much more powerful Aes Sedai than anyone at the tower might have initially suspected because they're all awed by Nynaeve's sheer power. But back to the core of all of this, what a horrible, horrible culture. And we said in last week's episode, we saw that Turok seems to believe that they are going to be uniting all of these forces supposedly against the dark, against the shadow, as he put it. But I believe, as we also said last week, we are seeing that the means do not justify the end. The way that Rena petted Egwene like a dog in that first scene as she removed the chain. It's just all so disgusting. And all of the breaking that Egwene goes through, she tried everything. And as that blue Aja sitter said at the end of the episode, she lasted longer than some Aes Sedai who are considered very powerful or at least have political power as she does. And as you heard me comment in the musical analysis, the fact that when Egwene put her hand on that picture, could put her hand on that picture, the score goes away. You need that kind of silence that what music does is it takes all of that emotion and it helps you expand it. But now in that very personal moment of Egwene feeling broken of the fact that Rena has seemingly essentially one you need all that music to go away to make it personal to make it isolating Egwene realizes it too and she's so angry with herself she's so defeated 
and she's crying out, then then the music can come back as it did. But I loved that choice. And of course, I hated that choice because I knew what that musical choice meant. I knew what the fact that she could touch that picture meant. Just all so incredibly awful. Now, as disturbing as it may sound, uh, Rafe has actually been on record prior to the season starting saying that these scenes between Egwene and Rena, maybe some more scenes to come in the future as well, are some of his favorites for this season. It's a weird thing to say, isn't it? But it's kind of true in the fact that there's so much emotion. There's such a great focus on what should be focused on about how we as a society should never, ever allow feelings of racism or classism affect us to the point of this kind of action, an action that plagues our country's history and exhibited through this Rena, who I got a shout out to Zella Mendes Jones. Oh my gosh, what a performance. Because you see the layers of the fact that she wants to kind of befriend Egwene, but she gets so frustrated by the fact that Egwene won't heed. It really is just a bad pet owner. Plus, probably a little fear that if she doesn't break this Damani, what will happen to her? It's just absolutely horrifying. And I don't feel a bit of sympathy for Rena whatsoever. But I gotta, once again, give it to Zella Mendes Jones for making something feel so real and so disturbing. And without doubt, these had to be really hard scenes for Madeline. I, I can't even imagine the emotional trauma that somebody goes through portraying someone to make it believable. You have to become that person. And that moved me to tears several times throughout this episode, made me angry several times this episode. And just want to say, Madeline, what an amazing performance. I'm so sorry you had to go through that, even though it was just a play on the television show awful you did great so the next topic on the wheel is the gangs back together again question mark because a lot of people are converging on Kyrian and you have land coming there after i guess he convinces alana that he's not a dark friend despite the fact that he had that poem on him he tells alana about moraine i suppose and swan on her way back from camelin evidently they meet up with her and now they're all getting into Kyrian with a whole bunch of Aes Sedai that we saw at the tower. Is there anybody left at the tower now? I mean, of course there is, but it seems like a lot of the Aes Sedai that we know, including Leandrin, is there to meet Swan in Kyrian. You have Matt and Min coming into town and Matt's having a good time and Min is regretting what she's done. Her meeting with Ishmael does not go all that well. You have Rand exhibiting a lot of that typical I don't trust you Moraine from season one. And I was so pleased with the boy for actually listening to her in the prior episodes, but not now. Instead, he says the only way to save her is to get away from her, which does sound like a land fear kind of threat. 
By the way, all of those Teleron Riyadh sequences were great, although I do not think that Ishmael was actually there when Lanfear casted him away, because we've already seen in the prior episode how they can recreate other figures. I think that was just something that Lanfear created to develop a little bit more trust from Rand. That agonizing sequence of Rand seeing Egwene and Egwene essentially seeing Rand in her dreams was heartbreaking and the way that he begged Lanfear to help him. He's doing exactly what Moraine was hoping he wouldn't do, which is allowing himself to be wrapped around Lanfear's finger. But he is going to head to Falma, and that was the plan. That's Ishmael's plan, right? Is to get Rand there for the last battle, the Tarman Gaiden, which actually, how many Tarman Gaidens are we going to get in this series? But obviously, Ishmael does want Rand there, so Rand's going to go there. But of course, he meets up with Matt, and oh my gosh, that heartbreaking, heartbreaking reunion i loved that reunion and was torn apart by the fact that men giving matt that little glimpse into her vision and her betrayal of matt how awful matt must feel right now as he has to see rand try to walk away of course we did have lan stop rand so there's still hope for rand and matt to get together and work on this problem together as I feel like it should be. We're going to get everybody else together here in Karian and then move everybody to Falma at some point. I continue to maintain that Matt's portrayal by Donald Finn is absolutely magnificent. The actor is an excellent replacement for Barney Harris, who presented a darker side of Matt. Here we have the victim side of Matt in a lot of ways. And I love the fact that Min is starting to correct her mistakes because that's a storyline that worked well to get everybody in Kyrian so that we can get closer to the books in a way. But we needed to redeem her in some way because she's one of my favorite characters and I don't believe book men would have ever done this. Although there are mentions in the books of men not being particularly fond of having the visions, it still seems a bit of a stretch to me that Min would make a deal with the Dark One. She actually technically made the deal with Leandrin, didn't find out it was with Ishmael until after the fact. And she's made good, so I'm good with her. She probably should come along to Falma as well. That is, of course, if she can stand, because she looks pretty drunk sitting there on the floor when she tells Matt all of this stuff. Wonderful acting from the both of them. Once again, that hug between Rand and Matt. I was so full of joy. I was so sad. Every every emotion came to me during that. All so good. But what does it mean for the story going forward? Because if we have Swan in Karian, and we have Rand in Karian, and Loghain in Karian, and Matt in Karian, and Min in Karian, Moraine and Lan, and all of these people... Everything has to come to some kind of head for Karian so that we can move on to Falma at least by the end of the next episode. We've seen shots and trailers of Rand talking to Swan. I would assume that's going to happen in the next episode. 
and we have to find a way to get Matt back into the fold here where he's not scared that he's going to kill Rand, even though he promised that he would in season one. It was for a more benevolent reason, I suppose. But I can't wait to see where all of that's going. Rand's interactions with Lanfear were fantastic. Lanfear, as always, is fantastic. I'll talk more about her in just a second, but let's move on to our next topic. The topic that comes up is Nynaeve, Elaine, and Rima. What a terrible set of sequences that was. I love how they're continuing to demonstrate that when Nynaeve sees a weave, she can then perform it as long as she can clear her block, which she did, but of course that unfortunately set up a terrible situation for Rima. Uh, that poor girl's courage to sacrifice herself was really tragic. And of course she did have a plan to just be done with everything, but that didn't work out before her warder could give her the peace that she wanted. He of course found his own peace. That was so heartbreaking. But I do want to talk a couple of things about the Terangrial again. I love that we're seeing that Elaine is able to work with objects. This is something that is from the books and probably will be continued to be explored. The interesting thing here, especially regarding Nynaeve, was her sense that the Terangrial, the Adam, is broken without being completed by a Domane or a magic wielder. This speaks a great deal to Nynaeve's tendencies towards healing. She's still wearing her wisdom belt, and I love that Rima identified with her in that way over a couple of things. More importantly to me, until we get to the very end, is the building of this relationship between Elaine and Nynaeve. Almost a sense that neither of them is good enough for the other. A lot of blame thrown around at the beginning of the episode. But the way that that culminates at the end with the two of them being so bereft by what they're seeing happen, causing them to hold hands to help each other out emotionally, that's exactly what I want to see because it was the only remotely human thing that you could exhibit in a moment like that. Very heartbreaking, especially with the intercutting of Egwene breaking, basically. So horrible. The agony of Rima when she lost her warder, the way that she used the one power in a way that essentially, I think, broke the oaths. And we'll get to oath breaking in just a bit because Rima does realize that Leandra must be Black Aja, which can only mean terrible things for the tower. But essentially, Rima in twisting people apart like that. Wow, that was a great display of the power, but oh, it was brutal. And you certainly can't blame Rima for doing that out of anger, out of rage, out of shock, out of sadness for the loss of her warder. Because we've already seen in this show how the loss of the bond with the Aes Sedai from the warder's perspective can cause so much pain. But we hadn't seen that from the other way. And that was very important to see as well. And I'm going to go ahead and loop in another topic here, and hopefully I'll have it in my liner notes. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and loop in Inktar and Loyal as well, because they're finding things out 
to help us understand what the game plan is going to be. The Horn of Valir, basically unguarded. Damanis, however, very heavily guarded. And this whole bit with High Lady Seroth making Loyal perform like he's a jester and doing the tree singing, which was really wonderful. I loved that. I mean, I don't know if you can say that the way it was affecting the tree looked photorealistic or not, but I really didn't pay that much attention to it, so I'm not going to gripe about it. It was good enough for me. And if you go through Amazon's extras, if you're watching on Prime, then you understand some of this stuff. How the way that the Ogier are builders is essentially the same as the way that they shape the wood is through this tree song. They can build any number of things. It's really a beautiful thing to see. So go back to those extras from season one and you'll actually see some of that happening in one of those origin stories. Okay, only two topics left on the wheel. One of them being Moraine, the other one being this one here, and that is Lanfear and everything that she's doing in this episode. I've already mentioned that I feel like that all of her encounter with Rand in the streets of Carrion in his dream was essentially her. There was no Ishmael there standing by that at the moment because basically what she's doing is she's helping Ishmael by getting Rand Falmo where he wants to have some great battle written in the sky. Tarman Gaiden, as Ishi calls it. But the more important scene for me was the one with Leandrin. We continually are given reasons to feel for Leandrin and what have you. And this one, perhaps the most tragic of all, but it's not like she can or will attempt to stop Lanfear when Lanfear says that she is freeing her from the burden. We get a little bit more of Leandrin's backstory, how she was mistreated as a kid, how she was basically pawned off as a child, and why she had that son, which makes her not that much older, 13, 14 years, maybe older than her son. I did feel for Leandrin having to say goodbye to her son, not being able to face him. Um, anytime you're facing the death of a loved one, it's a hard thing to know what you're going to do, how you're going to react, what you're going to do. You always hope that you're the person that is right there with them at the end and reassuring them. It doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes it's a choice. But the interesting thing here is that Landfear does remind Leandrin that her oaths are to the dark. They're not the Ishmael. They wouldn't even necessarily be to her. But this almost feels like a recruitment of Leandrin to the Landfear side of the cause, which is very manipulative, obviously. And you look into the fact that Landfear is essentially playing God there with Aludrin, I think was the name that was given the boy. Not a boy, the old man. All of this is fascinating to me. It doesn't make me think that Leandrin is suddenly going to turn to the light side when it was most story appropriate. We already see Leandrin beginning to meddle after this with Swan at Carrion. So have her allegiances changed? Was she ever really pledged to Ishmael? I suppose. 
that's the case because we learned through the deal with Min that Ishmael is the person that Leandrin was sending Matt to. But is she now working for Lanfear? What will that mean for the relationship between Ishi and her? What will that mean for the relationship between Ishi and Lanfear? Of course, he already suspects that she will betray him. She even openly admits it. So is this part of that betrayal. And Lanfear's words about how men treat them badly and yet they love them anyway is exactly the kind of thing that you would expect to come out of Lanfear's mouth, even as she's taken a breath out of Leandrin's son. I want to couple that with the fact that Lanfear specifically said, you swore your oaths. And there's a whole book thing on that because you think, well, if you've sworn your oaths to the oath rod, that you will not lie, that you will not harm another Aes Sedai, that you will not do these things, then what oaths could possibly break that? And there is a book answer for that, but I want to save that for the book section of this podcast. And I guess that's all that I have to say about that, so let's spin the last topic. And the final topic is Moraine's Mess, a double M. So this girl's having a hard day. She can't sleep because she's worried Landfear will come at her. Then Rand wakes up and tells her, basically, he must go away from her. That's the deal he made from Lanfear to actually protect her. Moraine realizes that this probably is going to lead to a serious manipulation of the Dragon Reborn and in desperation starts writing letters to Swan to report what's going on, even with what she calls being stilled. How do we feel about this, listeners? Has she been stilled? Does she have no chance of regaining the one power without some kind of miracle? Or is she merely shielded? Because in that conversation last week between Ishi and Lanfear, no real illusion as to one or the other was made, only that Moraine didn't have access to her powers, which would leave both possibilities available to the writers to go to. This is not unlike what we did all of season one for book readers a little frustrating because when we read Eye of the World, we already knew that Rand was the Dragon Reborn for most of the book. Rand tried to deny it. Other people tried to deny it. But you pretty much knew. A little bit of tweaking, a little bit of rearranging how story beats drop. And all of a sudden, now you have a season-long mystery of who is the Dragon Reborn. Lo and behold, yes, it's Rand. Is this whole thing about Moraine a similar kind of mystery for this season. Is Moraine stilled? Is she shielded? Do we care? Please, somebody give her the one power back so that we can get Moraine back. That's all I've got to say about that. On the other hand, Rand is making a mess for himself without her help, or maybe with her help, because he realizes that she arranged for Loghain to be there. She came to Carrion, of course, the place where her family still has power, a place where she is still important. Although evidently she hasn't helped any of that, she couldn't even return to her father's bedside. A lot of parallels there between her and Leandrin. Leandrin couldn't look at her son, but at least she was there. Is the reason that Moraine could not be there because she was in pursuit of the Dragon Reborn? Or was it because she just didn't want to be part of House Damadred anymore? Was she busy training to be an Aes Sedai? All of these things are possibility, but 
her sister sure makes it sound heartless that she couldn't even show up to hold her dad's hand when he was dying. The way people prioritize things around death is an interesting question to ponder, and it's explored a couple of different times in this episode. It's a personal situation for all of us, because none of us know until it happens how we might react. Let's not forget the fact that Moraine's sister is using Moraine's nephew to basically spy on her with the whole little sandwich thing should not be overlooked. Last week, Priscilla and I had a big conversation, and I think she has a video out on her YouTube. Search youtube.com slash PriscillaTV1, where she explains her theory that she believes that Moraine's sister is a dark friend and gives her reasons why, and they make sense. She had to raise her house up from whatever disgrace the house had because Moraine wasn't there. That would be reason enough to become a dark friend, perhaps. I brought up the possibility that it might be actually her son who is the dark friend because of his very interested nature regarding Rand. He didn't seem to exhibit as much behavior like that except for basically doing his mother's bidding this time around. So that possibility wanes a little bit. It could be that both of them are dark friends. But there has to be some reason to have them here other than just to have a place for Moraine to crash when she can't even crash. I would suspect that because we have to get towards where Egwene is, where Nynaeve is, where Elaine is, where Rand needs to go, where Ishi wants Rand to go, I suspect that we have to wrap up all this carrying stuff by no later than the end of next episode. I can't see it going any further than that. So we're going to get our answers real soon. Will they be answers that we like? Who knows? Speaking of an answer that we may or may not have liked, I want to talk finally about this thing that Moraine has been setting up with Loghain and Rand. What exactly did Rand learn? Doesn't seem to me that he learned anything except, oh, don't pull in too much power or you could burn out. Now, that's an important lesson, obviously. We've seen that in the show exhibited through some of the female Aes Sedai, or not quite Aes Sedai, like in the season finale of season one. But other than us seeing a super bright glow and Loghain's eyes getting big and saying, don't take in too much power, which I don't understand how he can do that anyway if he's stilled, I guess he can still sense the one power. In the books, it's like this thing where men are using the one power, other men get a tingle, uh, their hair raises on their arms, that kind of thing. But I don't think it was ever properly explained how Loghain could have ever seen Rand's aura after he had been stilled back in season one, even though he says that's what he could do in this season. And I don't think there's been any good explanation to the viewers as to how Loghain can help Rand now. I'll have more on this in the book talk because I do believe there is a reason why they're having Loghain do this stuff now, but it seemed like the one thing that I would take away from this episode for, because it didn't seem to do anything other than, yeah, Rand, you can use the one power. Oh, wait, don't take too much. Maybe that's important. Couldn't have Moraine told him that? And I hate to end our topics on that little rant, but I don't really think that I have anything else. 
But you fine folks, you people, you listeners, you watchers on YouTube have had a lot to say this week. So let's get to our feedback, man. I love getting feedback from you guys. That is what I consider my payment for doing this podcast because I don't feel like I'm providing you with any great insights or anything like that. I'm just expressing how I feel. And because of that, I don't ask for money. If I were to ask for money right now, I would just ask you to give it to the WGA and SAG After Strikes. There is a link for the Entertainment Community Fund in the show notes. I have demanded that Bubba include that in every YouTube. I include it in each of the show notes in my audio podcast. Please check those out. Please support those people because without these people, we won't get any more of these great shows. We won't get any more of these great episodes. I understand that Amazon's deal with whatever European company kind of helps some of the filming and some of the writing going on, but there are still members of SAG-AFTRA. There are still members of WGA that are working on these shows or that can't work on these shows because of the fact that the AMTPT is being, in my opinion, inhumane. So again, no money for me ever. But if you want to give some money somewhere, give it to the Entertainment Community Fund. And if you really want to pay me, then do it with your words. Like these wonderful sets of feedback that we got. We have some for the, for the book reader section. We have some for right here in the show section. First, let's start off. Both of these are from comments for our last podcast covering episode five, Bid Dosesi, uh, Stanislas, who, Stanislas, I went and checked your channel, love your guitar playing, uh, but says this regarding some ideas as to why they're not liking the show so much. Let's give you two scenes that and illustrates what I don't like about the writing and directing of this show. One, the Lanfear chase scene. Why have Moraine kill the horse instead of taking it with them? Why immediately make the above trick moot with random victim number one? Why were they hiding behind the rock if they weren't expecting Lanfear to have a horse since Moraine killed it? Why go back to Karian when they know that Lanfear has a base there? So that's situation one. Stanislas, I think those are all great points. Uh, I can try to be apologetic for the show, but I don't think that's going to make it up to you. What I would say is that if they took the horse with it, it probably would slow them down because you're having to hold on to a horse uh, or you're having to make sure that the horse doesn't get away from you. So either way, uh, it's probably, even though it was horrible, and PETA should be all over Moraine for that, uh, it was probably actually the smarter move in my mind, but, uh, why make the trick that Moraine pulled moot? Well, because we had to see that Lanfear was capable of exploding somebody's head is the only reason that I can come up with on behalf of the show. Uh, I think it's a good point that you make there. Why were they hiding behind the rock if they weren't expecting Lanfear to have a horse since Moraine killed it? Uh, you can either look at this as Moraine being two steps ahead of Lanfear, which I don't buy either, but 
to Moraine, Carrion is probably where she feels safest, even though Landfear does have a base there. So I would have suspected that she would have made her way back there anyway. It's the old run back over your own tracks so that you confuse the dogs kind of thing. Um, it didn't really work for me either. So good points there, Stanislas. Your second situation, the Leandrin Seroth scene. Horses in the ways are now okay. Channeling in the ways now okay. Why and how were the girls unconscious on arrival? Why was that huge palanquin dragged to the forest? Why did the Shanshan soldiers not directly take the girls instead of dropping them on the ground right beside Leandrin? And why were the girls not chased into the forest? Some of these, I think, are perfectly understandable from your point of view, Stanislas. Horses in the ways okay now? Horses in the ways were okay in the books, actually. I don't know why the show did that in season one. I think they're trying to correct a mistake there. Um, channeling in the ways okay now? Well, you can always channel. However, it might draw the Masha Shin. The other thing to consider, though, is that Pat and Fane and Trollocs followed people through the ways in season one. They were dark friends or shadow spawn. And so maybe the Masha Shen avoids those. And if Leandrin is in fact a dark friend, maybe the Masha Shen avoids her as well. Does it explain it? No. Again, I'm just trying to make excuses for these in some way. Uh, how were the girls unconscious on arrival? I don't suspect Egwene and Elaine ever woke up from being knocked out when Leandrin threw them against the wall in episode four. Nynaeve, she might, she would have had to put back to sleep. And that's something that could have been done with, uh, you know, certain roots that a wisdom might know. Maybe that's how they were just merely drugged. Why was that huge palanquin dragged to the forest? Status, baby, status. Suroth's got to show who's in charge there uh, to this Aes Sedai, this uh, Mosh Domain or whatever she called her, Damani, uh, because she just totally hates Aes Sedai. Obviously, she thinks that they should be Damani held in place by a Suldam, which we, God. That was awful, this episode of seeing all of that, going go through all of that. But other than that, no, I've got no reason. Good point. Uh, why did the Shan Shan soldiers not directly take the girls and instead place them on the ground right beside Leandrin? That one there's no excuse for. You're absolutely right. If they were smart, they would. Maybe it's to prove that they're not all that smart. I don't know. Uh, but it. There, you're right. There's, if, if you're a Shan Shan, there's absolutely no excuse for that. Why were the girls not chased into the forest? That one I don't know either. I got no explanation for you. So your points are very valid. Here's what Stanislas continues to say. I could pick at stuff like that for all the other scenes in all the episodes since season one. None of it has anything to do with the books. The amateurism of it drives me nuts. This stuff would not fly in any other television series either. But for some reason, this show gets an extraordinary amount of leeway. Moraine's characterization continues to baffle me. Her style is apparently to throw Ran unprepared and confused at Forsaken and hope for the best. I honestly don't know how this is, quote, good. But it wasn't 
all bad. Varen was fun to watch, and the antagonists are interesting, except for Pot and Fane, whose job it is to just be there and look creepy since season one. The episode was a 6 out of 10 for me. All right, Stanislas, thank you for that wonderful feedback. And I'm so sorry that you're frustrated with the show. Obviously, you've made reasons that make sense as to why you're frustrated with the show. Uh, but I hope you gave this episode a chance because just the sheer drama and the emotion of it uh, should have made you feel something. Uh, and I thought was very well executed. Another piece of feedback here from Tiger35JB, who we also know as John Al Thor. Thank you very much for your feedback on the same episode, saying that episode five was the best episode so far this season, but that's not a high bar to cross. John thinks that Avienda might be their favorite at this point, despite not a lot of screen time yet, but she seems a bit too friendly and casual for her character's personality. That's an interesting point, John Althor, and I think book readers would say, yeah, um, she did seem a little less uptight, uh, a, a little more loose uh, than we know her introduction to be in the books. However, uh, I'm willing to go with it. I'm, I want to have some fun with Avienda. She's one of my favorite characters in the books and she has already become one of my favorite characters in the show as well. I'm just like you there. One other little bit of feedback here was the fact that we took a poll regarding this week's episode and the sample size is still fairly small, but we did receive quite a few votes, not as many as I would like, but uh, here's what we asked. And uh, we asked how people to rate season two, episode six, Eyes Without Pity, uh, based on four categories. One to three out of 10 being poor, four to six out of 10 being okay, seven to nine being good or really good, and 10 out of 10 being perfect. 50% of you called this episode 10 out of 10 perfect. 35.7% of you thought it was good or really good. 12.5% of you thought it was okay, and none of you thought that it was poor. So, really like that feedback on that particular episode. If you voted on that poll, thank you very much. We're going to get into some book talk now, and so what I want to do is give you fair warning that you will be spoiled perhaps for all of the books if you continue to listen. So if you want to bow out of the podcast now, I understand completely. Remember, I always want your thoughts. Please send them to me at the word double the letters PHQ. If you're trying to reach Bubba, don't send him book spoiler stuff, please. I don't want him to be spoiled when he hasn't read the books. He will get around to reading the books. I know it. But until then, let's not spoil him. You can find me on social medias at Bust Blockbuster. There's no S's in there, even though this podcast is called Bustin' Blockbusters. No S's in there at Bust Blockbuster on Elon Musk's social. You can also send emails to me at Matt's Audioblog at gmail.com. M-A-T-T-S Audioblog at gmail.com. 
and you can always leave comments on our YouTube videos. You can find those as part of the Double P Media YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at the word double, the letter P, the word media. If you're not a book reader, thanks for listening. I'll be back on the other side of this with some book spoiler talk. Queen Morghese of Andor has issued the following proclamation. The following discussion will include spoilers from the Wheel of Time books by Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson. We ask that you read those books so that our discussion does not spoil you. You have been warned, so it is written, so shall it be done. If you are still here, I hope one of two things is the case. One, you have read all the books. Two, you don't mind being spoiled if you haven't read all of the books. Those are the only two conditions that you can be here that I can say safely it's okay for you to be here. Otherwise, you go on at your own risk. And I want to start off with some feedback Uh, regarding our book reader discussion and first of all this one comes from Nocti1701 regarding our actually our season two episode five tv friendly review however they brought up some book stuff so I want to make sure that we covered it here so as not to spoil anybody Nocti1701 says I almost gave up on the show after season one not for being a book cloak but rather for the fridge logic From episode 8 of season 1 to season 2's episode 1 premiere, Loyal Being Alive. This tale is a version of The Wheel of Time. Season 2 is a marked improvement from the production value, visuals, story being more consistent to its lore. I'm sad I may have to give up on some of my favorite scenes, like a farm boy beating two swordsmen while near to death, or even foxes and snakes. I do prefer the Forsaken being somewhat competent in this telling. Okay, first of all, Nocti1701, yes, I still haven't forgiven them for the fridge logic regarding Loyal myself. I think that that was just weird, Uh, and maybe it had something to do with the end of production of season one due to COVID or what have you. Not sure, don't care. The fact that it's not even brought up in the season two premiere still bothers me. It's one of the things that did get to me. So I can believe that. Yes, to foxes and snakes. Absolutely. We must have Matt walk through doorways. We must see foxes and snakes. We must have Matt get that spear somehow legitimately through the magical realms. It must happen uh, if he's going to have that spear at all. Now, the staff that some stills of him have been taken. I believe, I can't remember which content providers sniffed this one out, but somebody said that they thought they saw a raven on that staff, which we know what that means. That's the spear that he gets from the doorway in Roydian and uh, nearly dies for it. So uh, if he's going to have that staff in this season, we better figure out how the heck he gets it. And it better be the reasons that we want. 
Foxes and snakes. Will we get either? God, I hope so. David McGarry, 4355. That's David McGarry. Uh, this was on our book review of episodes 203 through 205. Having a stunt team organize a battle scene where some characters are holding a lead that goes around the necks of other characters would be problematic purely on a safety level. Noted. Given the trail of power that links the collar to its controller and the physical link used on Egwene, I do think that the show is well aware and made a conscious decision on this issue. Regarding the stone with the old tongue writing on it, this is interesting. In season one, someone translated what they could see of a similar stone, and it seems to be a milestone marker rather than the portal stones. Thank you for that bit of information. I was not aware of that, David. Very much appreciated. Uh, David goes on to say, Traveling and skimming are great to get to places quickly, but perhaps not so good for following someone, especially someone who isn't leaving a huge trail. Obviously, the show hasn't even introduced the concept yet. Lord knows, I wish Perrin had used it in his protracted chase scenes, and that would have been easier as there would have been a much more obvious trail. Excellent points, David. I appreciate them very much. Uh, also, thank you very much for that information on whether that was a portal stone or not. That is something that we discussed, and there seemed to be evidence that just because it had appeared in season one that it might be meaning something. The fact that two stones that might be have mile marker stuff on it being on the way to Tarvalin or on the way away from Tarvalin actually makes a lot more sense. I don't think we're going to get the portal stones. I don't think we're going to get the flicker flicker. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think it's going to happen. Now, some things that I want to talk about regarding this episode, specifically just two things. We're going to make this quick today, but I mentioned it earlier in the non-book podcast. There is a book reason in the way that Black Aja can avoid the consequences of the oath rod, the vows that they take to the oath rod when they become Aes Sedai. But it also involves the oath rod. Uh, they have to forswear all three oaths upon the oath rod. They are then free to lie, craft weapons, and to harm others using the one power. And then they must swear the black oaths upon the oath rod instead. So they have to get the oath rod and say, nope, we're not going to do this no more. Then they have to swear their black oaths on that oath rod which holds them to the new oaths it's convoluted but one thing that it really was interesting because Rima got this exactly right without saying what i just said Rima said if leandrin is black aja then the entire tower is in danger because where does the oath rod live in the tower, which means that there's likely more Black Aja in the tower, which we as book readers know is in fact the case. In fact, we all know that Shirim uh, is a Black Aja, well, a dark friend, Black Aja, I, you know, it, it all gets all so convoluted and my head can't keep any of it straight. But Shirim's bad. Shirim could have just as easily lied in episode five as she was compulsed. Maybe her and Leandrin planned it that way. Leandrin did compulse her with her permission 
and then she lied to Varen about it. Either way, it's all going to lead to Varen going down a very dark road. Another thing that I wanted to bring up was uh, Aludrun. Um, I was wondering this name of the son, if it was a tribute to Aludra Nedenhall, that she was the illuminator who gets into trouble with her order uh, because of everything that happens with Rand in Karin. And then, of course, uh, ends up getting saved by Matt and Tom, I believe. Uh, she's also the one who meets Nynaeve and Elaine at the traveling show. Uh, there's other things about Aludra, the dragon eggs. If this is not just a nice little book reader nod to Aludra, this Aludren, who is Leandrin's son, if it's not just a tribute, then that name really sticks out. And it sticks out to me for this reason. If they're using that name and saying, yes, we know this is in the books. Are they also saying, we're going to drop all these storylines. That's me always taking, you know, the slightest inch and trying to stretch it a mile. But what do you guys think? Let me know at Bust Blockbuster on Elon Musk's social media. You can send emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. What else about the books this particular episode? What you have to say, of course, is the fact that the Egwene Rinna stuff was just gut wrenching. Oh my gosh. And I don't know, you can picture it in a certain way in your head when you're reading these passages in the books in The Great Hunt, but to see them in live action. And once again, both Zella Miranda Jones and Madeline just absolutely killed this episode they deserve serious consideration from the academies for their acting ability in these because it was super super intense super super emotional all of the inner monologue for Egwene you could read it on Madeline's face you could read it on Egwene's face in this television show and it's it's absolutely weird to say that I'm so happy that they did that right because it is the most gut-wrenching stuff. And I would almost rather not see it at all. It'll be very difficult for me to even rewatch this episode. Because it is just so, so painful. But it was expertly executed. Without doubt. The question about Rima. Because we had this sitter of the Blue Aja. Whose name eludes me now. From season one. Being the person that Egwene was talking to. I don't think we're going to get the Rima stuff who begs Egwene to tell her her name over and over again so that she won't forget it. Uh, of course, Rima ends up becoming a Domani named Pura, and we may see her again in that capacity. But I think what happened between Egwene and this Blue Aja sitter, whose name I can't remember, I think what happened there is the stand in. For that part that Rima plays in The Great Hunt. So I don't think we're going to see Rima again this entire season. Except maybe at the end we might see her as a broken Damane working against our group. And that will be gut-wrenching also. Especially after the way that they did this. As I mentioned in the TV only portion. To explore the warder's perspective of losing an Aes Sedai, losing the bond, 
They'd done that in season one. Now they flipped that in season two with this. And oh my gosh, you never felt the decay of that bond as strongly as when it happened to Rima and the way that she acted afterwards. Just gut-wrenching. It's really hard to say I loved it after you think about how heartbreaking it all is. But man, I loved it. It was just so good, so well done, so dramatic. I'm just floored by this episode. And yet I didn't rate it as high as I did last week's episode because I do feel last week's episode was a little more fun. There wasn't a whole lot of fun in this episode. Um, very uncomfortable stuff. Stuff that we as human beings need to acknowledge has happened in our past. Stuff that we as human beings need to forever fight against ever happening again. Something that we as human beings need to let go of prejudice and class and just look at people as fellow human beings. I know I'm asking for a utopia and I know I won't get it, but there's absolutely no way that we can get anywhere close to that unless we keep asking for it. I had a lot of distaste for the fact that men was somewhat of a traitor. I thought the reasoning was sound. I thought that as the last three episodes have gone on, they have softened how harsh that felt. I just want my old men back. And I hope that we get her back before the end of this season. I hope that she's the one treating Rand's wounds. I hope that we see her at the beginning of next season with Rand, wherever he is, which I don't think will be headed towards tier at all. I think they're dropping the tier storyline. I've given all of that reasoning in prior podcasts, but I just want men to be more men. And I really don't mind that Matt's not perfectly Matt yet. They did such a weird thing with Matt in season one. And even our non-book reader podcaster Bubba has said, you know, everybody keeps telling me Matt's their favorite character, Matt's their favorite character. And I don't see anything to like about this guy at all. And I appreciated the dark side of Matt's story that was presented in season one, but it's a heck of a journey to get Matt back to where book readers want Matt to be. And they made good steps with this time around and they're having to do it with a new actor. And this new actor, Donald Finn, is absolutely killing it. I think that he's going to bring to fruition the math that we know and love. We've already seen glimpses of it this season. I think we'll continue to see it as time goes on. He's definitely going to be there. Let's just hope there's foxes and snakes. If not at this season, then in the next season. He better not have that staff without foxes and snakes. There, I've whispered my last words. If you want to contact me at Bus Blockbuster, you can send emails to mathsaudioblog at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to me ramble. Thank you very much, Dave McGarry, and to Nocti, or maybe that's Nocti1701, for your excellent book reader feedback. We'll be back next week to talk about the pinned ultimate episode of season two of Wheel of Time. Were there already? Didn't it just start yesterday? See ya.
send emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com and find all back episodes and other information at mattsaudioblog.com. Part of Double P Media, doublepmedia.com.